You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's August 6th. Navigating today's fast-paced media environment isn't easy or straightforward. It requires a wide range of skills, such as critical thinking, detecting bias, deception, or manipulation, and understanding how social, political, and historical contexts are relevant to a story. Many of America's teachers believe that their students lack these skills, and they also say that there isn't much guidance about how to promote these skills in their classrooms. A new RAND report aims to close this gap by providing step-by-step recommendations for implementing media literacy education in K-12 schools. The report covers how to set learning expectations for media literacy, specific media literacy standards that can be used by teachers, instructional resources, how to measure and monitor progress, and more. Focusing on media literacy education could do more than just help young people consume and engage with media responsibly. Media literacy may also be a powerful tool in slowing the spread of truth decay, the diminishing role of facts in U.S. political and civil discourse. You can find this new report and our many other resources on how to counter truth decay at rand.org slash truthdecay. Another new RAND study out this week takes a close look at sexual harassment and discrimination in the active-duty U.S. Army. The study provides insight about how these problems play out differently, and sometimes similarly, among men and women soldiers. Here are just a few of the key findings. First, sexual harassment and gender discrimination occur more often for women in the U.S. Army than for men. And more women than men report experiencing harassment or discrimination on more than just a single occasion. Second, women in the Army who experience sexual harassment or gender discrimination reported some common types of behaviors. These included mistreatment on the basis of gender, sexist comments about women's ability to perform their job, repeated attempts to establish an unwanted romantic or sexual relationship, and sexual comments about their appearance. Men, on the other hand, were most likely to experience insults related to their masculinity, sexual orientation, or gender expression. Notably, both women and men reported frequently experiencing offensive sexual jokes and unwanted discussion of sex in the workplace. And the settings in which sexual harassment takes place are similar for both women and men. And finally, regardless of whether the victim is female or male, the perpetrators of these acts are almost always men, and they're typically enlisted soldiers who are peers of the victims. However, it is worth mentioning that women are more likely than men to be sexually harassed by their direct supervisor or another higher-ranked member of their chain of command. These and other findings may help the Army better understand the serious problem of harassment and discrimination within its ranks, and find ways to prevent it. In 2016, Los Angeles voters approved Proposition HHH, a $1.2 billion bond intended to fund the construction of 10,000 apartments for people experiencing homelessness. 
So far, this effort is falling short of its goal. And according to a new RAND report, one reason may be the labor agreement requiring that a primarily union workforce builds housing developments of 65 units or more. Developers responded by disproportionately proposing smaller housing projects that would not be covered by this labor agreement. There were 22 projects proposed with 60 to 64 housing units, just under the threshold that would require a primarily union workforce. Meanwhile, there was only one project proposed with 65 to 69 units of housing, just above that threshold. The report estimates that, without this stipulation, about 800 more housing units could have been funded on top of what's already in the pipeline. Now, there are other factors contributing to the shortfall, including significantly higher than expected construction costs. But our study looked specifically at the project labor agreement. Which was approved by city leaders about 18 months after the ballot measure passed. Rand economist Jason Ward, who wrote the study, says that moving forward, considering the effects of this type of labor requirement on the primary goals of public housing policy, and making sure they are clearly communicated to the public, would improve transparency and help ensure that realistic goals are set for such programs. The eight Arctic nations, Canada. Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Russia, Sweden, and the U.S. have long cooperated in the region, even when their respective interests have clashed on other matters. But conditions in the Arctic are changing rapidly, driven by such factors as climate change, economics, and geopolitics. In a new report, Rand researchers identify potential catalysts for conflict. These include Russia's central role in Arctic access, China's growing economic and political involvement in the region, and increasing safety and environmental risks. Let's break down the safety and environmental risks. How might these issues open the door for conflict? For one, melting sea ice increases maritime activity, enabling access to more areas of previously ice-covered ocean for longer periods of time. And the Arctic remains an extreme environment, where small incidents can quickly turn deadly. So, if a major crisis were to occur, such as an environmental disaster, a major ship or aircraft collision, or the sinking of a tourist ship, it could escalate to a military miscalculation and potentially a conflict if there are misunderstandings about the cause of the accident or the appropriate way to resolve it. The authors of the report also consider how Arctic governance could evolve to mitigate risks. Ultimately, they recommend three actions to promote regional cooperation in the future. First, improve the currently limited dialogue and transparency on military issues. Second, update and provide new capabilities to implement existing agreements between the Arctic states. And third. Enable more inclusivity in Arctic-relevant decision making, without challenging the sovereignty of Arctic states. Rand is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.